The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to a special edition of What Catholics Believe. Tonight I'd like to address a question that came up in the last several months, a question that was posed by Francis himself regarding the Our Father. Francis says that the translation of the Our Father is faulty. He says that the concluding part of the Our Father and lead us not into temptation is a faulty translation. This is not true, of course. This is an exact translation of the Greek New Testament. And lead us not into temptation corresponds exactly to what the Greek says. And thus it has been translated in this way, with this meaning, through all of the different languages of the world, even till this day, that is, until Francis's day. Francis has the temerity to say that this is a poor translation, that he knows better. It sounds like the voice of Luther saying that what the church has taught all these years is really not adequate, that Luther, Dr. Luther knows better. In any case, um, we could ask the question, what does this phrase really mean? And why would this be stated in the words of the Our Father that our Lord himself taught us? And uh, we'll take a look at that in a moment. But we need to remember what St. Pius X wrote in his encyclical Pascendi Dominici Gregis of September 8, 1907. And twice, at least, in his encyclical, he talks about the reforming mania of the modernists. And he points out that there is absolutely nothing sacred to them. Nothing so sacred that they can't change it. Nothing so sacred that they fancy they can't improve it. And so they will leave nothing alone. And certainly they have brought changes to virtually everything the Catholic people knew. Now the Our Father is on the block, and it is going to be improved. Uh, Francis even had, again, the temerity to say that in the past the Church was immature, that her thought was immature, her teaching was immature. Now with Francis we have the maturity to know that the death penalty is evil and that it can never be justified so much so that he actually amends their new catechism to make it even newer, to reflect his now mature understanding of what the faith actually teaches about the death penalty, that no one actually either saw or had the courage to say before. And so this is quintessential modernism, and Francis is the apotheosis of the modernist. But in any case, um, let's get back to that question about God leading us into temptation. A prayer to the Our Father and not to lead us into temptation. Well, does God lead into temptation? The fact is, yes, he does. In fact, he does. We saw this in the Gospel of the first Sunday of Lent, which begins with the words that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now, Francis insists that it is the devil's job, as he calls it, to tempt one. But the idea of Almighty God, the third person of the Blessed Trinity, leading the Son of God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity incarnate, 
into the desert to be tempted certainly fulfills the, the meaning of the, the term lead us not into temptation seems to apply there because that's exactly what the gospel says the Holy Ghost did leading our Lord into the desert for that purpose to be tempted and so um, the point is that God himself is not providing the temptation but he leads us into temptation what does that exactly mean? Well, it means that God will put us to the test. He will try us. Does God actually try us? Of course he does. We've seen that happen time and time again. We see it happen to, even to the Son of God himself when he was tried in the desert, tempted three times, and he was led into those temptations by the Holy Ghost himself. But we see this happening time and time again when our Lord spoke with his apostles. For example, in the wilderness, when our Lord had thousands of people, hungry people, but nothing to eat, our Lord turned to his apostles and asked them, how can, how can we feed these people? And the apostles answered, well, even 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to give even uh, a little bit to each one. Now, 200 denarii worth of bread was basically almost a year's wages for a common laborer. And uh, the gospel tells us that our Lord asked them to tempt, to test them, to test them. Because he knew what he would do. And that is when he took the barley loaves and the fishes and he blessed them. And he uh, told the apostles to distribute them among the thousands who were then seated on the ground. And as you know, there were more, uh, more loaves and fishes left than they started with. In fact, they filled the baskets over and over with more food than they had started with. This miracle was so telling that the people wanted to risk their lives in proclaiming Jesus Christ their, to be their king. But our Lord disappeared from them because he had not come merely to feed the multitude with earthly bread. The point is, though, that our Lord did ask a leading question of his apostles, and the gospel says explicitly that he did this to test them, to try them, to see what they would say. And he knew what they would say. Uh, it was to be to set the, the platform, as it were, for the miracle that was to come. And later on, when uh, the apostles were struggling on the sea, in the stormy sea of Galilee, and our Lord was asleep in the boat, uh, do we think that our Lord was not aware of what was happening? Why didn't he get up? Why didn't he calm the storm? Why did he allow it in the first place? Why did he allow the apostles to be terrified? So much so that finally they awakened him, uh, as if the storm couldn't have done that, and uh, cried out, Lord, save us, we perish. Our Lord then rebuked the winds and the waves, but he also rebuked the apostles for being those of little faith. How often did our Lord test their faith and find it wanting and rebuke them for it? Those upon whose faith, our faith, and all the faith of all the, the Christians who would come, all of the faithful, depended on the faith of the apostles being absolutely invincible. And here our Lord found them to be of little faith. Well, our Lord tested their faith and tried their faith for a reason. And that reason was to strengthen their faith, to insist that they, they cry out for a stronger faith. We find this ten testing of the apostles and testing of ourselves, actually, uh, everywhere we turn. Uh, God does make these tests, and we wonder why, uh, why he would do that. 
we might actually find the answer very clearly in uh, a statement that our Lord made to a Canaanite woman one day. Um, one day there was a pagan woman following our Lord and the apostles, and she was very insistent, but our Lord ignored her. Our Lord ignored her, uh, but she would not go away. And finally the apostles asked our Lord, please, can we send her away? She's extremely annoying. And our Lord uh, turned to the woman and said, what do you want? And she was pleading for the life of her daughter. And uh, our Lord made a comment at that point that seemed extremely cruel, it seemed out of character for him. He said, it is not right to take the bread of the children and throw it to the dogs. What a horrible thing to say for anyone. But for our Lord, it seemed inconceivable that he would say such a cruel thing to this poor woman who was moved by love for her daughter to abase herself in front of everyone, humble herself, humiliate herself, asking from a Jewish rabbi, as far as she was concerned, a favor, a miraculous favor, pleading for her daughter's life. But, you know, our Lord gave that statement not only to her, but through the gospel to us all, even to this day, as a monument because he knew what graces he was going to give to this woman. He was testing her. He was trying her. But he knew what graces he would give her. And he knew that she would cooperate with those graces and make a, a sublime act of faith and humility at the same time. How did the woman respond to this gross insult? With humility and faith, she said, Yea, Lord, but even the whelps or the... The, uh, the dogs get to eat of the crumbs that fall under the master's table. And then our Lord addressed to her a word that he addressed to his mother on two occasions, once at the wedding feast of Cana and the other from the cross. O woman, he said to her, O woman, he said to her, which was actually a term of respect. And he said, great is thy faith. And be it done unto you as you've asked. And our Lord granted her a miracle, a pagan woman. He held her up as an example, to, even to his own apostles, uh, let alone to the rest of Israel, of humility and faith and perseverance too. So our Lord tests, but he tempts, he leads into temptation. He doesn't tempt, but he leads into temptation to prove us because he knows the graces that he's going to give. And he knows that those graces can raise us up to a higher level. We cannot rise up to a higher level unless we strive forward. St. Paul, again, uh, talks about the striving forward and uh, not resting, but, but straining forward to achieve and to accomplish. Well, our Lord is drawing us forward and leading us into temptation is a way of doing that. So it is a very good thing in terms of the graces that God gives. It is a very good thing uh, in terms of what those graces accomplish and those who will those who will cooperate with that grace. So it is simply false to say that this is a bad translation. It's patently false because it is patently an accurate translation. Francis wants to change it, though, because he doesn't like it. He says it's not what a father does to put a child or a son to the test. I tend to think he would make a very bad father. In any case... There are those who insist that Francis did not say that we should amend the Our Father. There are those who say that this is a 
not only a mistake, but it is it is a, a, a actually a false statement and a, an attack on Francis, unjust attack on him to claim that he says we should retranslate that part of the Our Father. The fact is the Italian bishops picked up on this right away, and lo and behold, their conference got together, and they, they actually voted to change the translation of the Our Father's phrase, and lead us not into temptation. Now they want to re-translate re, uh, it as, do not abandon us to temptation, which is a different meaning, and uh, voids it of the meaning that is actually stated in the Our Father as our Lord gave it. Now, that has to be approved by Francis. We'll see what happens here. But they got right on this because they understand what Francis was getting at. Because they're, as modernists, they understand modernists. They understand Francis, that when he makes a statement like this, that his intention is to move ahead and uh, just change what he thinks needs to be changed because he says he knows better than everybody else ever knew in the history of the church. So, in any case, we have to uh, be very careful about this, though. And I, the, the death of Gottfried Daniels, uh, the archbishop there, the cardinal in Brussels, um, has brought out a reaction from traditional Catholics, which is sometimes problematic. Um, and I, actually, I'm referring not so much to traditional Catholics as I'm referring to statements made by kind of conservative Novus Ordo Catholics. On some of these conservative Novus Ordo Catholic websites, there's almost a chortling about the death of Gottfried, Cardinal Gottfried Daniels. He's a cardinal of the new church. Uh, he died at the age of 85 recently, and he was a member of the Sankt Gallen group. Uh, he was the one who actually said that they were kind of a mafia, kind of a mafia to... Uh, swing the elections of the Novus Ordo Popes toward the liberal, uh, toward the liberal goal of bringing Vatican II to its ultimate conclusion. They, they thought that uh, John Paul II and Benedict XVI were not really pressing forward with the principle of Vatican II hard enough, almost as though John Paul II and Benedict that we're exercising kind of a holding action, uh, just trying to keep the changes where they were. And, you know, in terms of modernism, um, they might be considered more like the Mensheviks as opposed, opposed to the St. Gallen group's Bolshevism. Uh, the Bolsheviks were determined to drive uh, socialism forward in the world by violence, by force, by ramming it through. The Mensheviks thought, well, let's wait and see. By attrition, little by little by little, socialism will take over the world by a kind of a natural process forecast by Karl Marx. And so, again, John Paul II and Benedict seem to have more the Menshevik idea of modernism triumphing uh, in the course of time, whereas the St. Gallen group wanted to ram through uh, Vatican II and everyone. And uh, so they began plotting. They were plotting to elect Cardinal Martini, who was their leader at one point. Um, but he became ill, and eventually he weakened and he, he died. He was so radical, he was unspeakably radical. Uh, it's interesting to note that, all, that those involved in this, in many cases, have been implicated in the homosexual abuse crisis in the church, 
in the modern church um, or, and or covering it up. So there's a component in the St. Gallen's group which is certainly um, very, very corrupt. Okay? But they fastened on Francis now. They wanted, they wanted the 2005 uh, conclave in the new church to come out with someone like Francis, and Francis almost carried the day. I think Martini actually won most votes on the first ballot there. Um, but eventually, that's where we got Benedict XVI, or that's where they got Benedict XVI, I should say. And in 2013, after Benedict had resigned, uh, they finally got their way, and they elected their man, uh, Bergoglio, uh, so uh, Jorge Maria Bergoglio, who took the name Francis. So, um, so this this group was a a, a a like a cadre. Well, actually, they referred to themselves as a mafia, mafia within the Church of the Novus Ordo, in order to um, elect a man who would be so radical he will finish the work of Vatican II. They picked Bergoglio. They picked the right man. Obviously, they're a good judge of character, and there is a real character there. But the thing that concerns me is after the death of Danielle, as I began to see on these conservative websites and news sites, almost a joy in the sense that he passed away, a sense of satisfaction. Some even indicated, now, now he's gone to judgment. Now he's gone to judgment. Now he's getting what he deserved. I thought that was very offensive. I don't think that's a Catholic attitude at all. Our Lord insists that we pray for our enemies and not pray for them that they rest in peace as soon as possible. Our Lord is, wants us to pray for the conversion of our enemies. He doesn't want to pray for their demise. Our Lord said, God wants not the death of the sinner, but that he be converted and live. And that's where our prayer should go. After all, if we're so upset that what these men are doing is offending our Lord, that he's attacking our Lord, he's attacking his sacred heart, he's attacking the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And that is the reason why we are offended, not because of our pride, because they offend us, but because they offend God. Then obviously the solution is not to have them go on forever in hell for uh, offending God. That's not the solution. That's not what we should hope for. What we should pray for and, and sacrifice for is the conversion of these souls, because our Lord died for them too. What were the first words out of our Lord's mouth? The first statement our Lord made when he was crucified, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that's the spirit that you and I have to have too. When we pray for the enemies of not only our own souls, we pray for the enemies of the church, we pray for the enemies of Christ, we cannot be praying with a certain bitterness, anger, or even malice and hatred toward them. Uh, a certain gleefulness that they're going to get theirs. We have to pray as Christ prayed. And what did our Lord say at the Last Supper? At the Last Supper, our Lord said to his apostles, referring to the, the commandment as it had been, the second great commandment, to love thy neighbor as thyself, our Lord said to his apostles, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, that's the commandment that you and I have to take from our Lord at the Last Supper. We have to put it into practice. We have to apply that. And that means we have to will the good, as our Lord commands in the Sermon on the Mount, even of those who persecute us. We have to will for their conversion. We have to will for their salvation, too. And that charity will overcome the malice that they have and the hatred that they have. 
It doesn't mean we have to be patsies and lay down and be totally passive in, in light of persecution. That's not the point. That's not the point. The point is that even when we resist evil, we have to do it out of love for God and not out of malice. So I ask you, please take the example of our Lord. And also, we just celebrated St. Patrick's Day. Take the example of St. Patrick. I mean, here's a, here's a young man who was, who was actually taken. Talk, talk about uh, human slave trading, right? Talk about human trafficking. Well, this happened to young Patrick. He wasn't uh, a native of Ireland. He was taken there in slavery. He was taken there to be sold as a slave. He was bought there and enslaved by an, an Irish, you could call it that at the time, uh, a Celtic uh, lord of some kind, at least he had enough sheep to, be, to need a shepherd. And Patrick was forced into that. Um, and that's the life that he lived for a number of years. And he escaped, but he escaped for the sake of coming back. This time not as a, as a, as a slave, but as a priest. And when he came back as a priest and a bishop, the chains that bound him uh, in, his, in his slavery as a priest and a bishop were stronger than the chains that bound him when he was a slave, herding sheep. Because the chains that bound him when he returned to Ireland as a priest and a bishop were the chains of, of divine charity. He felt that Christ had chained him, in a sense, like as St. Paul had said so long ago, referring to the chains or the bonds of Christ that bound him. And so Patrick was bound by these chains of divine charity that took him back to the people who had enslaved him. And he went back to free them from their slavery, slavery to the devil. And this man spent himself day and night, year after year after year, sparing nothing. He could have been martyred at any given moment. And the fact that he was not put to death did not stop his ongoing living martyrdom. Day by day by day, he sacrificed continually for the salvation of these people. He loved them so much. And now what he must see from heaven is left of Ireland in, in tatters. It's just shredded by modernism. And the modernists, these 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 false shepherds, these mercenaries, these wolves in sheep clothings that they've called bishops and they've called cardinals there have betrayed the Irish people and the Irish Catholic people into the hands of their enemies so they're not even governed by Irishmen anymore. And they're not governed by Catholics anymore. And what a travesty they, they have made. The devil had his sights set on Ireland out of a particular malice toward that people because of the heroism of their Catholicism. He was determined to destroy them. And the modernist so-called bishops and uh, the modernist so-called Catholic hierarchy of England betrayed them into the hands of their enemies. And uh, this is what we see now. We need the spirit of St. Patrick. We need the spirit of St. Patrick to withstand these, these people and all the evil they're wreaking now throughout the world. And on some very, very... Desire, souls who are so desirous of being Catholic, but they can't see what to do about the crisis going on in the church. They can't seem to find their way. We have to help them find their way. You're not going to help them find their way by malice and by bitterness. 
You're going to find, you're going to help them find their way by charity. They will recognize the charity of Christ for those who are willing to work and to pray for the salvation of souls, even as St. Patrick himself did. So let our cry be exactly our Lord's on the cross. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Let us have that cry be at the gates of the abortion clinics. Let us have that cry be at the gates of the Novus Ordo Chancery Office and whatever else they're doing on the floors of Congress. We should have that spirit of Christ and pray sincerely for God's mercy. But the greatest mercy of God, of course, is repentance, sincere, abject, humble repentance and reform. And that is what we have to pray for. May God bless you.